Hey there, it's Sebastian. A quick note before we start today's episode, we want to let you know about an amazing learning experience we've had with the Great Courses Plus. This is an on-demand streaming platform with like 13,000 different lectures covering a ton of topics. I just watched a course called The Cathedral, you know, the church where a local bishop is. It's incredible. 24 half-hour lectures on cathedrals, from their architecture to their role in politics and legal matters. Uh, I mean, when we think about where the church meets the world, cathedrals are literally that physical place in history. So to watch the cathedral, subscribe to The Great Courses Plus. Check it out. And they have a special deal for Church Meets World listeners. If you go and get a subscription, they will give you an entire month of unlimited access to these lectures, all of them, for free, for one month. So go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash cmw. This is a great way to kick off the new year, to learn something new, or to go deeper into a topic that you're already passionate about. Thegreatcoursesplus.com slash cmw. Welcome to Church Meets World, a podcast from America Media about where the Catholic Church meets the most interesting and consequential issues of our time. I'm Sebastian Gomes, an executive editor at America. And I'm Maggie Van Dorn, an audio producer at America. And today we have a really interesting and I'll say timely episode (laughs) for our audience, and that is dealing with the question of free time. Whether we know it or not, or like it or not, Obviously, the COVID pandemic has dramatically changed our relationship to time, and especially how we think about free time. A lot of us have felt alone, maybe a little bit like monks during this period. But however you feel, uh, time is a crucial, crucial matter, uh, not only to live a healthy and balanced life, but also in questions of Christian ethics. Now, Maggie, you produced this episode. Uh, Tell us a little bit more. What drew you to this topic? Mm -hmm. Well, having lived and worked in New York City for seven years, I found myself constantly surrounded by workaholics or people who spent an inordinate amount of time sort of chained to their desks. And I I know this isn't true only for New York. It's it's true for a lot of people. Um, and But it does feel pronounced in New York. It does. It does. <laughs> Thank you for validating I can, that. I can, I can testify to that. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's, so it, it is a part of New York culture. And as you said, this past year, living through the pandemic has really altered our relationship to time. Um, and so I was introduced to Connor Kelly, who just published this book called The Fullness of Free Time. And I thought it w- he was asking really interesting questions about how we structure our, our time. Um, and it actually reminded me of a, a quote that I love from Annie Dellard, you know, which is how we spend our days, of course, is how we spend our lives. And mm. in, in that way, there's nothing almost more essential than asking, what are we doing with our time? Oh, gosh, that is such a good question. And I feel like I don't always have an answer to that, (laughs) or maybe even ever have an answer to that. So that's why I was super interested in this topic. Um, Now, Connor Kelly, whose book you mentioned, uh, he also wrote uh, an article for us at America. So you can read that at americamagazine.org, and we'll link to it in the show notes. But Maggie, set this up for us. Um, How are we getting into this topic here in this podcast? So we start with Jonathan Malesic, who was once an academic, but after several years, uh, burnt out and has now taken up writing about work and free time and leisure and rest. 
All right. And Maggie and I will be back uh, after the episode to break it down a little bit, some takeaways. I'll ask her some questions about what she learned through the process. But first, here's our episode on leisure time. When I was an academic, I was probably working an ordinary amount of hours a week, 40, maybe 50 hours uh, a week at busier times. Um, it wasn't the schedule and the, the amount of work exactly that caused me to, to, to burn out at it. It was really the, the gap between my ideals for the work and the reality of it. Um, I went in expecting that uh, I would be, you know, living the life of the mind. And the reality was very different. You know, the students were in fact not that interested in studying theology. And, you know, you spend your days doing very mundane tasks um, and for very little recognition often. Uh, and that wore me down um, day by day and year by year until I got to the point where it was a real struggle just to get out of bed in the morning and do this job that I had at one time dreamed of, um, but it had become more like a nightmare. My name is Jonathan Malesic. I am a writer living in Dallas, Texas, and a frequent contributor to America Magazine. And a lot of what I write about is the problems with the approach to work that we have in American culture and how we might start to forge a more humane approach to work. Work, business, J-O-Bs. In the U.S., most of us spend at least 35 to 40 hours a week in our jobs. That's roughly 90,000 hours over a lifetime, or a third of your life. This is not the norm. By every measure, the United States is the most overworked industrialized country on the planet. While employees in countries like France and Finland enjoy 30 days of paid vacation every year, in the U.S., we average 13 days and are guaranteed none. We don't have federal laws protecting parental leave or paid sick days either. And even those who work for the church, or those like Jonathan who have had the privilege of pursuing a dream job, can wake up one day and realize it's actually a nightmare. It's appropriate to take rest for the soul. This is Connor Kelly, a Catholic ethicist at Marquette University. And he says it's not just that we're overworked or underpaid, but that we're really missing out on the most essential kind of time, which is free time. I would say that I first thought about the connections between free time and ethics when I was uh, at Notre Dame. It was fall break, his senior year in college. We were all really cognizant of the fact that this was kind of our last moment together before we scattered to the winds at graduation. And I came up with the idea that we should take a trip, group of friends, and was doing research, found a little log cabin in the I think Daniel Boone National Forest in Kentucky. I go to talk to one of my friends and I say, look, wouldn't it be great if we do this? Would you like to come along? And she 
kind of thinks about it for a moment and says, it does sound like a lot of fun, but don't you think it's a little indulgent to take this time away when we could be doing a service trip or helping here in the community? This planted a question in Connor that he would ponder for years to come. What is the value of free time? And why was it so difficult for his friend to see this? And I thought, what is it about our Catholic tradition that would leave a faithful Catholic woman feeling like she couldn't take time for herself? This story is all too familiar for anyone who has worked in ministry or education or nonprofits. No one is drawn to these professions for the money. They're motivated by a sense of mission and vocation. But there are no limits to the needs of the world, no punch card to mark a full day of productivity, and no cap on the time and energy devoted. This often leads to burnout. And while the call to serve may be inspired by Catholic teaching, the work ethic does not reflect good theology. Jesus came and gave selflessly in human form, but was also God. Let's not lose sight of that fact. So for us in our finitude, I think it's appropriate and in fact necessary to be able to take the time to honor that finitude. The number one person in the tradition who stands out for me is Thomas Aquinas, because he was really quite attuned to the ways that our creatureliness, our finitude as humans, frankly, create needs and give us limitations. In his writing, he articulates that it's appropriate to take rest for the soul, that our spiritual good depends on the health of our body in a way, because we're embodied creatures. And he kind of talked in terms of play and and talked about avoiding frivolous pursuits for their strict frivolity. Um, But he also says at the other end, a lack of playful enjoyment is also a sin. I'm going to say that again for anyone who needs to hear it. Lack of playful enjoyment is a sin. That's not my words or Connor's. It's St. Thomas Aquinas, theologian and doctor of the church. We could be too focused on our efforts and deny our creatureliness. And that denial for him is sinful because that's a rejection of who we are made by God. In other words, let God be God and don't rail against your own creaturely limitations. And that's not disrespectful to the vocational responsibility. If anything, it's sort of a hedge against idolatry because it allows us to recognize the ways we're creatures and not the creator. So as you're talking, Connor, I'm really resonating with everything you're saying. And at the same time, there is this nagging question in my mind, which is, you know, isn't free time an indulgence of the upper class? You know, does free time or leisure time or recreation depend on a kind of caste system or others working hard so that we could enjoy an incredible amount of leisure? Oh my goodness, listen, you can't talk about free time without talking about privilege. It's certainly not if you're going to talk about it morally. (laughs) And this is true even from the earliest kind of philosophical vision of leisure. Aristotle would have talked about the importance of leisure as this kind of pinnacle uh, achievement of humanity. But his vision for that possibility was quite explicitly based on the idea that the Greek society had a bunch of people who were slaves usually captured in war, doing the work that allowed for the food to staff the tables of these 
leisurely conversations that would help people contemplate goodness and truth. So given that history, certainly it's impossible to not think about the structures that are involved in having free time. And then when you add on the fact that work hours have increased, wages have stagnated in the United States in the last 50 years, to think about, oh, there's moral goodness to free time is easily going to slip into some kind of bourgeois project of the upper classes unless you actually tackle the structural challenges. What are the structures that are limiting people's access to free time? And what does it mean to take those seriously and to try and do something about that? Connor says there are at least three ways to think about the relationship between free time and economics. First is time poverty. We have a situation on one end where people tend to be resource rich, so have more money from higher paying jobs, but time poor. Think doctors pulling long shifts at the hospital, lawyers whose time is billed by the quarter hour, financial experts who practically sleep under their desks. They're all well compensated, but they don't even have the spare time to enjoy rest or leisure. And then at the other end, there are plenty of people who find themselves being resource poor, but time rich. And the kind of classic illustration would be somebody who's unemployed because you have a lot of what seems to be free time in the kind of sense of not being obliged to be at work. Or you're a teacher. Your summers are the envy of all, but your salary prevents you from doing anything with them. Trust me, I know. My first three years living in New York, I taught high school theology, and I actually convinced myself that I didn't need to take a vacation because I already lived in New York City, a major travel destination. In reality, I just didn't have the money to leave my apartment. And then there's the third category, those who are both time and resource poor. No free time and no money, which is only possible when people aren't paid a living wage. So if we actually could raise our minimum wage to a living wage floor, as Catholic social teaching advocates, then what we begin to see is that people can live off 40 hours a week and are not expected to take three different jobs at minimum wage so that they can just get by for their family. So raising the minimum wage is one solution, but there are other ways to protect our time. One of the things that I talk about structurally is the way that in the United States, there are no guarantees around vacation time. Paid time off is completely at the arbitrary uh, whim of an employer. And what would it look like to have guaranteed vacation time? Can I have you start by just saying your name and maybe what it is you do here? For sure. Uh, name is Michael Fitzpatrick, but everyone in the company knows me simply as Fitz. Been here for 17 and a half years with this company, and I'm a retail sales manager here at REI Arcadia. Started in the REI, or Recreational Equipment Incorporated, is a co-op retailer specializing in top-quality gear and apparel, expert advice, rental equipment, all to promote outdoor activity. 
If you like to hike, bike, or climb, chances are you've spent many hours and dollars at REI stores. I made a trip to my local REI at Connor's suggestion. He told me that in all of his research, REI had some of the best company policies around paid time off. You just, you kind of grow up feeling akin to. So I imagine that people who want to work at REI, love the lifestyle that it promotes and enables, you know, love being outdoors, being in nature. Um, what can you tell me about REI's employee policies about encouraging that in, you know, kind of the off time of employees? I, there's a lot that goes along with that. Um, the most recent addition, and this, this is something that came about probably in the last half decade or so, they've introduced something called Yay Days. Basically, every employee is given two Yay Days um, per quarter. It's basically a paid day off, and, and it's encouraging you to go and recreate and do something you love and reconnect. They want us to connect. It makes us better experts. Um, they want us to be stewards as well. It's a part of who we are. It really is. It's, it's sort of, it's part of our DNA. Besides Yay Days, REI has an unconventional approach to sales. Starting six years ago, instead of coming up with some, you know, crazy Black Friday sale uh, that started stampedes and, and, and made people, you know, focus on being indoors and, and spending um, their hard-earned money. Black Friday is arguably the biggest shopping day of the year and the most lucrative for retail. The Black Friday frenzy, an estimated 116 million shoppers hitting the stores. Bedlam in the aisles of some of the nation's biggest retailers. Shoppers fighting REI opted out. What we decided to do is just close our doors. And uh, our company now for the six year in a row pays us, pays us, all 14,000 plus employees. We are paid to close our stores on Black Friday and we're encouraged to get outside and have some fun. And so, yeah. With the coronavirus pandemic, lots of stores shut their doors and turned to online sales. It wasn't really a choice for most companies. And on Black Friday 2020, American consumers spent over $9 billion, setting an all-time record. But for REI, the decision to shut their doors was completely deliberate. This, this past Black Friday, which was just now a few weeks ago, um, would have been our sixth opt outside. Um, it was, uh, when we first heard about it, we, we thought our our senior leadership team had gone crazy until we realized they weren't kidding. It is basically our way of saying we're putting who we are, we're putting the people that work here, and we're putting the outdoors before profitability. Most people just go, wow, incredible, what a message you're sending. And, and I mean, It's not just Black Friday. There's a real culture of recreation here. There's a strange sense of nearly... Um, spirituality for a lot of REI employees that, that, that use the outdoors to kind of commune and sort of reinvigorate who they are internally. Two of, two of my uh, team just came to me the other day. They wanted to plan a climbing trip. They were a little concerned that I would say no because of the time frame that they were asking for off. It was a very critical time um, here in retail. And I said, no, I'm going to do everything in my power to get you guys out because I understand when you go do that, it makes you better when you come back. And we are better employees, but we're better people. While we can all probably agree that some R&R does us good, Connor says that there's a danger to thinking about our free time only in this way. It's easy, it seems to me, to envision our free time through the lens of recreation, which is to say that we would look at it and say, this free time I can justify because it's going to allow me to 
come back to work re-energized. You have a company basically saying, all right, I'll seed you these two days on the weekend so that you can come back and work for me for five. And does that really give a lot of value to those two days? And one of the things I worry about is if we just couch it in utilitarian terms, then we're reinforcing the assumption that the only way anything has any value is if it generates some kind of economic productivity. Not that cycles of rest and productivity are all bad. And for companies determining paid leave policies, it's a fine place to start. But for Catholics, it just doesn't go far enough. Catholic anthropology envisions real deep value to a human person that goes far beyond his or her economic contributions. The idea of every human being being made in the image and likeness of God, and for that reason having an inherent dignity, really talks about an intrinsic value to each human life. So we are valuable and good and love, not because of what we do, but because of who we are. I think that's very well said. Hunter, your book, The Fullness of Free Time, was released in October or fall 2020, you know, while while we are still living in the midst of a pandemic. And I'm sure that you had been working on it for years prior, uh, perhaps not anticipating how COVID-19 would totally restructure our relationship to work, to relationships, to free time. And yet I imagine that you also would have a lot to say about our relationship to all of those things. So how do you see this pandemic changing our relationship to work and free time first? And then also, how has it changed our relationship to others? So in work, we've got whole new ways of working. We've got people working remotely. We've got additional protections for those in essential jobs. But when it comes to free time, the number one thing people were doing with their free time before the pandemic was watching TV or streaming video. The number one thing people are doing during a pandemic is still watching TV and streaming video. And I think the reason that there hasn't been a dramatic shift in activity around that is people didn't really know what to do. During quarantine, the boundaries between work and home life have blurred. Our normal social outlets and public gathering spaces vanished almost overnight. Some of us took up new hobbies. Homemade sourdough bread had a moment. Consider me your uh, your sourdough liaison. So did Zoom parties with our friends and family. <laughs> what are, we, are we talking about just how things have been? Just what is happening, what has happened this week. But after week six or so, we started to realize that this might actually be a longer lockdown than we originally thought. And we slid back to TV which Connor says is not ideal. So what actually happens with watching TV? Well, it really negatively impacts our relationships. The more you watch TV, the more you disengage from the people around you. So the other kind of fascinating thing about television's effects is that for the most part, the more people engage in free time activities of one kind, the more they engage in other free time activities. So the more you um, play tennis, for instance, the more you're likely to be outside jogging or doing some other things too. 
But TV actually has the opposite effect. The more that you watch television, the less time you spend in other free time pursuits. And I think part of what we're missing is the human connection, is the relationship. And so the question is, how can we still try and build that relationality? Yeah. And what would you advise for someone who is uh, maybe living alone, suffering from some real Zoom fatigue, and you know, also prohibited from engaging with people outside socially, uh, in person, you know, with all, with all of the limitations that we have during this pandemic? I think it's really hard under the current limitations to be thinking about how we can achieve some of this grand vision for free time as a resource to honor our relationships. As there's been this increase in free time with some of the lockdowns, there's a value to thinking about how we as individuals might cultivate some of the appreciation of leisure. And what that means is, can we take a moment for somebody who's living alone, can take a moment and say, what is it that would really be good for me? What, what's something that I appreciate intrinsically for its own sake? But what if we've forgotten how to take pleasure in our free time or never developed healthy habits in the first place? What if we're bad at leisure? In order to rediscover what Connor Kelly calls the fullness of free time, we're going to have to take a page from the ancients. I had studied and written about the rule of St. Benedict, which is the sixth century handbook that Benedictines adhere to and, and live their lives by. Here's Jonathan again, the writer we heard at the start. I myself burned out at my academic job as a tenured theology professor. What started as an intellectual project on monasticism morphed into a deeper existential quest. And so I wanted to go visit a monastery, and I think I found Christ in the Desert just by Googling, you know, something like Benedictine monastery work. You drive north of Santa Fe along the highway for about an hour or so. And then you turn off of the highway onto a pitted gravel forest service road. Um, and it's about a 13 mile drive from the highway to the front door of the monastery. And it takes the better part of an hour and the road is not passable at all in certain weather and certain times of the year. And as I approached, I was just seeing, you know, this amazing landscape, these you know, magnificent mesas and rock formations. And there's this shallow shimmering river. I woke up uh, at about 3.30 every morning um, to the bell ringing uh, at the monastery's chapel. You know, a Benedictine motto is ora et labora, prayer and work. And they don't divide the day evenly between prayer and work. The first office of prayer at Christ in the Desert is at 4 a.m. And as I sat in the guest's 
portion of uh, this really stunning chapel uh, at Christ in the Desert. Uh, I could at some point see the sun peek up over the rim of the canyon and we went from almost total darkness to bright sunlight in just a matter of minutes. After dawn in the chapel, the monks have breakfast, another prayer time, and prepare for their work day. By nine o'clock, they were in their, their work gear, uh, wearing like tunics and jeans. The work of monasteries has never been to turn a profit, but simply to contribute goods to the local economy and sustain themselves. At Christ in the Desert, work can take a variety of forms. Cooking, cleaning, furniture repair, growing hops for beer, and even taking care of livestock. This is footage from the monks at Christ in the Desert, documenting their work. We have many jobs here. One of them just now was chasing some cattle off our property. And we have squash and pumpkins, same cucumbers here. Then we have tomatoes. And in part, we've become a sanctuary for horses that are looking for homes. And then at 12.40, the chapel bell rings again, and that signals that it's time to end work for the day. And I remember speaking with one monk about the work period, and I asked him, you know, what do you do when you've been working all morning and maybe it's a difficult task and you hear the bell ring and you, you feel like your work is undone? And he looked me straight in the eye and said, you get over it. You know, getting over it is a spiritual discipline that we don't really have in 20, 21st century American society. The idea here is not just that our lives are dictated by a 40-hour work week or company policies, but that there are other forces at work within us, controlling our relationship to time. So the very first Christian monks who write a great deal about battling demons. And, you know, I started to get a little worried, like, oh, my goodness, you know, what, what demons are, are going to come up on this, uh, these several days I was going to spend in this utterly silent canyon that is, importantly, completely out of cell phone range. It was just going to be kind of me uh, in, you know, this, this cell, this guest room, um, and whatever is kind of inside of me. And I, I mentioned this um, kind of half jokingly to one of the monks, you know, my, my worry about uh, the demons and what the desert fathers had said. And he is responded in utter seriousness. No, there are many demons here. You know, that's why we're here. And whether you think of demons in a very kind of literal way or not, I think that it's a good term for talking about the tendencies or the habits or the incentives that we have that undermine us, that undermine our spiritual and moral and communal lives. And the work ethic itself is, in, in a sense, demonic. Um, 
we convince ourselves that we are only worth something if we're working really hard. And in our culture, we tend to think of dignity as something you earn through work. So people don't have dignity, and then they go to work and they earn dignity, they earn respect. In Catholic social teaching, it's the exact opposite. Work doesn't dignify us, we dignify work. After his time at the monastery, adopting those ancient rhythms of work and rest, Jonathan began to feel its effect. When I got back into my rental car at the end of, you know, on the fifth day of my stay at Christ in the Desert, I felt exhilarated. And I think the reason was that I had seen that there are other ways to live a good human life. I do think I'm a little better at getting over it. I'm a little better at getting over my work and saying to myself, you know, this is enough for today. I don't need to, you know, wring a little bit more productivity out of myself. I can set this aside. It will still be there tomorrow and everything will be fine. That was Jonathan Molesic, a writer, Connor Kelly, a Catholic ethicist and author, and Michael Fitzpatrick, REI employee and outdoorsman, obviously. Um, <laughs> I think we all know who has the best job out of those three. Without a doubt. <laughs> Can I just say that I've always loved REI, um, and it has really been actually a, a way for me to better use my free time. Um, I've always been like an athlete. I've always played competitive sports, loved competitive sports. I was a soccer player for, for a long time. Hmm. Uh, as I'm getting older, um, the types of activities that REI is promoting has really started to appeal to me as my body kind of begins to break down <laughs> a little bit. So going on hikes. I was going to say, do you use the hiking sticks now? I, I, I do. I do. Yeah. <laughs> I do. I, I, I know what it's like to scale a mountain or even a large hill without the pole. And every time I'm coming down on my knees, I'm like, man, I really need to get one of those poles. Yeah. Um, so love REI. I mean, you could spend hours in there, but that must have been quite the experience. And 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 Michael was a, a great find. Yeah, absolutely. He was a pleasure and, and a joy to speak with. And I really haven't found anyone as enthusiastic about their work and their play and how they come together as he was. Right, right. And, you know, what's key there is that they have been very intentional about creating policies that support mm. a good understanding of time. So um, that's such a key takeaway for me of this mm -hmm. episode uh, that you have to do that intentionally. And I feel like the the onus is on the, the, the people with power, right? I mean, the employers. Not only that, not only the people with power, but I mean, even looking at our federal government, um, that there is no required sick leave policy. There is no required... Um, paid time off or, or family leave. You know, right. these are things that are basically left up to the employer, which, you know, it's, it's great if you have a understanding employer, but if that is not a mandate, if that expectation is not set at a federal level, then it can vary widely. And it also struck me that this is important in the church as well, right? There, mm. there are so many people working in the church for the church, uh, who, 
don't have the system around them like you're talking about to support that either. So yes, at the highest level, federal government, but also at the employer level, even if it is the church and even if it is a ministry, how important this is. And not only for everybody's health who is working, mm-hmm. uh, but just out of principle, right? To live a fully dignified life. Like that's the that was the thing that Connor was really trying to say. But it's not just about policies. Am I right about that? That's right. There's a big shift that happens kind of halfway through the episode where we go from, you know, looking at sort of the structural components of our lives and how they do or do not contribute to leisure time. And then Jonathan introduces this question of, okay, let's say I have the dream job, um, but I have a certain relationship to this work, which is really killing me. And he goes to the monastery and and when he's speaking with them with one of the monks there, he references this work ethic, this obedience um, to productivity as a kind of demon. And so the conversation shifts from what are the external limits to our free time or our leisure time to what are the interior limits that that we hold ourselves to and how do we get free of them? That's a very Ignatian question, Um, Mm -hmm. deeply reflective uh, and something that obviously we all need to do on an individual uh, basis as well. Um, This was a great production. I'm just wondering, in in your research and talking to people, was there anything that surprised you in that? Well, the greatest irony was when I was trying to find someone to address the question of privilege head on, you know, which Connor Kelly raises. Um, but I wanted someone who could speak to what it was like to be working multiple jobs or caring for a family at the same time. And I, I actually did a significant amount of outreach and apparently no one had time to return my phone call. Um, wow. It was really, wow. really difficult, uh, understandably, you know, for, for someone who is working really hard and doesn't have free time, they, they're certainly not going to have time for an interview on it. Totally. I was thinking that a little bit when, when uh, Jonathan went to the monastery and I thought to myself, how many people have the luxury of going to a monastery to figure yeah. this out? Yeah. Well, and and that's actually one of the reasons I really wanted to do this episode and, and to focus on leisure time is because as soon as we voice this, I can see the eye rolls as though it's uh, a luxury we can't afford. And I think there's something really tragic about that. Like we can't even afford to consider how we spend our days and how we spend our time. And it may very well be true that there are real limits in our lives and work and company policy to that. Um, but I, I appreciate the way that Jonathan kind of pushes us deeper to say, okay, if, if we can't immediately disentangle the external limits, what can we do within ourselves? And I think that's still a question worth pondering, uh, especially as we're redefining our relationship to work during this pandemic. Well, thanks for putting it together, Maggie. It was uh, a very interesting and challenging episode, um, but perfect for this time right now when we're trying to, you know, rethink and reimagine how we use our time. Yeah, my pleasure. And that's it for this episode of Church Meets World. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. To hear future episodes, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review and let your friends and family know about the show. That's the best way to get the word out about it. We'll be back with all new episodes in the weeks ahead.
This episode was written and produced by Maggie Van Dorn. I'm the executive editor, Sebastian Gomes. Sound design was by Ashley Spillane. It was based on an article by Connor Kelly for America Magazine called The Streaming Era Ruined Our Free Time. Is it too late to reclaim it? You can find that at americamagazine.org and we'll link to it in the show notes. Thanks for listening.